ready to sink your teeth into scripture and get a bulldog grip on its truth. Let's gnaw on some doctrine and get bulldogmatic. Here is your host. Hi, my name is Scott. I'm here with uh, Pastor William Shiplett from Reasoning Tree Church in Edinburgh, Virginia. It's, it's good to be here today. Do you have any books you want to tell us about? Uh, not today. today. No, no, no nothing other today. Than you Just can, refer them all to yeah. to your Williams, books. WilliamsGoodWord.org, and okay. you can you can find the books there and information about them. Right. So it's Williams-Good-Word.com, and again, .org. Link in the uh, description. So uh, we, of course, have been discussing the book The Christian Life by uh, Doctor Sinclair Ferguson. And we're in chapter five, and we're going to talk about conviction of sin mm. today. Now, that's something you don't hear in a lot of churches, unfortunately, no, uh, no. nowadays. But let's get started. Dr. Ferguson says that there is a major danger attached to formulating a doctrine of Christian experience. It is the tendency to give the impression that experience, which may take time fully to develop, is consummate in an instant. So why is this a major danger? Well, the, to, I think the reason it's a major danger is because it, you can short a circuit genuine um, conviction. You know, mm -hmm. we have this tendency in our culture, pray this prayer. Uh, you have you have churches that we won't mention, but they go through a whole message. It has absolutely nothing to do with sin. And then at the end of the message, they say, would you like to pray and accept Christ as Lord? Right. Lead you through a prayer, and there's no there's no change, there's no conviction uh, about the, the what what why are you calling out to God? Right, and it's it's sort of like a very simple transaction. Pray this prayer, you're saved, mm -hmm. and there's no discussion about what I'm being saved from, which we discussed in our with our R.C. Sproul's book, "Saved from What." Right. What am I being saved from? Uh, so, so that's the danger. We end up with a kind of superficial Christianity that claims the title, mm -hmm. uh, claims the belief in Christ, but it has no concept of what it is we, we are depending on him for. Right. And that's uh, what's so good about the book that we're going through. We can see these things. And uh, uh, if something's wrong in our view, then we can correct them. So... He also goes on to say, effectual calling is seen to be something which often extends over a period of time. And then a few sentences later, he says, effectual calling has at times been regarded as synonymous with regeneration. So obviously it can't be both. So what is he telling us here? Okay. Uh, I think part of it is, again, that idea that it's instantaneous. We tend to think of regeneration being born again as like that. Right. And there is that, there, there's, this is hard to describe. When, when a person comes to Christ, they tend to think it all happened in that moment. And in reality, God has been bringing a person along. So there are all kinds of situations in your life that you may have experienced that were bringing you to the point of, surrender and 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 being born again mm -hmm. you aren't born again to that moment where you confess your sins and and pray for uh cleansing and right. making christ lord of your life but but there were all kinds of events preceding that okay right. 
And so uh, I say sometimes to people, if you came to church this morning or if you came to Christ, you may think I, I did that today, but it was really the accumulation of events that God used to bring you to himself. Right. Very, very few people just walk into a church one day and we could say nobody just walks in on their own and says, okay, today I'm going to get saved. Mm -hmm. There were all kinds of things in the background that God was doing to bring you to that point. Right. God's been working throughout their lives in probably different, many different areas. Mm -hmm. But there are times, um, maybe, uh, for instance, like when someone's on their deathbed. Um, the, that, that, yeah, that would that be. A, it could be quicker Right. Then, then others, but right. all experience. I think what he, he, maybe he's trying to bring out is it's different in everyone. It's different in everyone, and that highlights again the danger. And I want to make sure we under, make, because many times people misunderstand us. When we talk about praying the sinner's prayer, we're mm -hmm. not saying you can't get saved praying the sinner's prayer. Right. We're saying that a, a large group praying the same prayer together, and I understand the reason for that, but it it. It, it really fails to take into account all the differences of those people in that crowd, mm -hmm. the different reasons they're coming to Christ, the different the different instruction they might need. Right. Uh, it, I read a book called The Graham Formula, and in that it talks about how even Billy Graham, who, who originated, the, the argument is that Billy Graham originated the sinner's prayer as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Because he had such great crowds coming forward at his crusade, so he had to he had to find a way to do this, uh, which it worked for him. But even Billy Graham said that he didn't expect more than a fourth of those people to continue in the Christian faith if they didn't get follow up counseling and invitation to church, etc. So even he recognized that though this is a necessary means of doing it, mm -hmm. it is not uh, uh, foolproof. It's not a fail safe. Mm -hmm. There has to be that interaction with people. So when you talk about this this concept of of when this change comes, it comes from conviction of sin, and that conviction might build up over time, and it is possible that a person prays the prayer without any regard for their sins. Right. Yeah, even though they're mm -hmm. saying, even though you say, well, I'm praying for forgiveness of my sins, but, but can you identify, a, a, or, or is that just a very generic term? And that, I think, is where you get into the the uniqueness of each individual person, mm -hmm. okay? And some sometimes uh, they can be presented presented with it in the way where anyone's going to say yes yeah. know, and raise yeah, their hand. Exactly, um, exactly. Like, yeah. who wants to go to heaven? <laughs> you know, everybody uh, yeah. wants to go to heaven, yeah. of course. So, so I think it's important for us to learn this uh, so when we go out, and try to evangelize right. and tell others about Christ is that uh, possibly he could have been, could be working in their heart. It, and it's also possible that this could be the very first time. Could be the very first time, right. It could heard be. Heard the uh, word of God. So, right. Uh, some people call it uh, a religious awakening, working differently in each like rising out of sleep. Uh, is this how you understand it? Yeah, I would see it, I would see it that way. He goes on in there, as you, and you may have a question regarding that, about how everybody's conversion experience is different, mm -hmm. how they will come, when it will come, how long it will take them to grow through their, uh, their, their particular uh, struggles to a point of true surrender. So, so each one of them, but, but the ultimate down at the bottom 
thing that everybody should be able to agree on is that something happened to make me aware that I was in need of something mm-hmm. that I previously did not think I needed. Right, right. He talks about when he was a boy and there was uh, still capital punishment in the in the UK. And he says, I used to waken with a sense of horror when an execution was to take place. What could it be like to be roused that morning from fitful slumber to realize one's identity as a condemned prisoner and to remember that this was the day appointed for his life to end. Now awakening that inward spiritual process, which is the result of God's call, brings to the surface a similar sense of reality of our condition before God. It makes us aware of his condemning judgment upon our sin unless we can find some means of salvation. Um, That's a very good comparison, I think, that he brings out. Um, Our eyes are open to impending doom, I think. So uh, does this tell us that we, I think you just told us this, that we must see the need uh, before Christ. Uh, We must see the need for Christ before we can come to Christ. Or yeah. before we will come to Christ. Right. And come to Christ for the right reasons. Come to Christ for the right reason. Not because you're going to boost your self-esteem. Not because you're going to meet all your needs. Not because you're going to give you your best life now. Mm-hmm. But because I'm a condemned prisoner. I stand under the judgment of God. I have no options except His mercy. And that's where the, the true sense of salvation and redemption comes from. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, that's where that story he brings out. I have always just thought, I, I've tried to imagine myself in that position. Uh, and if you've ever watched a program where, where someone, whether rightly or wrongly, went to the death, went to their death, you're, you're just, mm-hmm. you put in that thought of what is this feel like? And you see there's, there's a total sense of hopelessness, no way out, no, no way back, no way around. Mm-hmm. And and that's where we have to be with our Christian experience to really to but prior to our Christian experience to really get this grasp. But this is it. I must have the grace of Christ, or I will, or I perish. Right. And and that sense of need is paramount to becoming a a truly. Uh, a true Christian, if mm-hmm. I can use that terminology. Right. Uh, well, he talks about the, the prisoners. They wake up and they know that today's the day that they're going to die. Now, as the older you get, uh, as you know, uh, as we grow older, the more we realize that every day we wake up may be the day, right. may be our last right. day. When you're younger, you don't think about it near as much you think you have the you know your whole life of course is before you but if you go out to the cemetery there are a lot of people in their teens in their 20s 30s or up any age so you never know you never never know know when it's your time so we need to keep uh, you know keep that in consideration dr uh ferguson goes on he says the prodigal son came to himself and then he quotes uh Luke fifteen seven that says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And he also says that something similar took place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. He experienced what has been called the breaking up of the incivility of the sinner. Now, that's the first time I've ever heard that, that phrase. But he says in plain terms, uh, it means he was convicted of sin. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Insensibility? No, in, uh, in breaking up of the insensibility of the sinner. Uh, no, I haven't heard that specific phrase, but I've heard the in, the word insensibility, of course, before, mm-hmm. but not that phrase. But it, it, it's just that concept of when a person, I, I think this is, we have, to, we have to be careful here because, it, you know, if you were raised in a church and you had a good Christian family, you may not be as sensitive to your sinfulness when you come to Christ, okay? Right. Uh, but but I do think it there is a place for at least some people, as in the story of the prodigal son, that you, you really realize how how foolish you've been, how blind you have been, how how you found pleasure. And the, and the way I would is, uh, the way I would describe it, and I've heard many Christian people describe this, is that from their safe position, they look back on their sinful life and they think, was that me? Mm-hmm. That was me? I did that kind of stuff? So you see that kind of contrast there. And that's how I would describe that that insensibility, that it was so bizarre you couldn't believe after you're saved that you ever did any of those right. things. And how bad it was. Yeah, and yeah. He goes on and says... Uh, for grace often grows strongest where conviction of sin has pierced the deepest. Now, I want you to think about that phrase, and I'm going to read from uh, uh, the book of Luke, Luke 7, 36 through 50. So that's give you plenty of time to think while I read. Uh, and after I'm done, I want you to comment and tell us why that statement is true. And I can read it again if, if you need. For the grace... For grace often grows strongest where conviction of sin has pierced deepest. In Luke 7, 36 through 50 reads, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she had learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the, with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who has, had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? who even forgives sin. And he said to the women, He said to the woman, Your faith have, sa have saved you. Go in peace. Well, it was interesting because when you, before you read that, that's the passage I was thinking about with respect to that. That people who have come out of deep uh, sin tend to have a deeper uh, visible, and we have to be careful here, deeper visible emotion. That goes two ways. Right. The one is, if I'm the person who's come out of deep, heavy sin, it is easy, if I'm not careful, I can convey the message that other people don't love Christ as much, okay? Right. And so we have to be careful with that. That may be exactly. true. That may be true. But I cannot use the depth of my experience to uh, elevate myself over others. That's right. a danger. But it is true that uh, an awareness... Now, the way that a religious person or somebody's been in church all their lives and never got into the drug scene, you know, uh, was a virgin to the point they got married and has been faithful to their husband or wife throughout their time and can say, well, you know, that's never been a problem for me. That person still needs to slow down and recognize how dangerous self-righteousness is mm -hmm. because it can come to the same place. That, that is, the person who's been saved from a very deep place of sin can look at the righteous, the religious person as though they don't love Christ as much. Right. And the person who's, who has always had a good religious life can rest in that religious life and never have the sense of passion because they, too, are unworthy and sinners and, and offensive to God in, in ways that we typically don't think. We can become offensive in our attitudes when we think, I, I'm better than that person because I was always in church. I've always done what I was supposed to do. And that's the argument if you go to the, the uh, prodigal son again. The, the older brother said, I've always done what you wanted me to do. Exactly. I've, I've always been faithful. I've always been here. Mm -hmm. And he was as wrong in his attitude right. as the younger brother in, in going away from the father in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we had to be careful with that. But the principle is sound. And if I have, if I am the kind of person that's always been in church, I've never been saved from real darkness, I need just to ponder sometimes how my, my uh, self-righteousness, how my, my view that my denomination is the best. And we, we've been around the longest. And right. my church has been in this community for hundreds of years, etc. Et All of those things can become a platform of self-righteousness, which is just as offensive to God as any other sin. Mm -hmm. And I can have an opportunity to repent of that right. and, and have a renewed sense of passion uh, for the goodness of God. Mm -hmm. And what... I see in that, what I pull out of that uh, scripture that I read is that conviction will always bring you to a point of worship. Right. She was worshiping at the feet right. of Jesus. And uh, that's what conviction of sin 
and the realization of what God has done for us will bring us to us to our knees. If, right. if, if it doesn't, then something's yeah, not, something's, not right. Something's out of kilter. Yeah. Right. He goes on. He says the uh, author of he talks about the author of uh, conviction, and he quotes John sixteen seven through eight. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, So we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit today. Now, I've heard, uh, I think there's a lot of confusion, it seems to be, in the Christian community itself about the Holy Spirit and about the work of the Holy Spirit. I've heard the Holy Spirit called things like, like it and things like that. But uh, the Holy Spirit isn't, uh, of course, he has power, but he isn't just a power or an it. Uh, Tell us, tell us who and what the Holy Spirit is. Well, it's, it's difficult because we use the, we use the phrase person. Uh, the person of the Father, person of the Son, person of the Holy Spirit, that's really a, a term that's appropriate but inadequate, okay? Mm-hmm. It's right. very hard to discuss it, but it is it is accurate in the sense that we're talking about someone who feels, thinks, decides, wills, uh, can be grieved, mm-hmm. can, uh, can plan, can direct. So the Holy Spirit is not just some kind of power like electricity as, our, as the Jehovah Witnesses believe, just some sort of a, a, a vague energy. Right. Uh, he's a person, and his role is to bring conviction. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned at the beginning, is conviction is not something we hear a lot about. But you hear people talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. Right. But one of his principal roles is to bring conviction. Now, we we need, of course, remember to learn how to tie scripture together. So, so in Acts chapter one. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come and you will receive power mm-hmm. to witness. Right. Okay. So part of the power, and this is where we can get, it can become so us-centered. You know, I've got power with God. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, hey, you don't have the power. The Holy Spirit in you has the power. Right. But secondly, the power is not to elevate me. It is convict sin. And I cannot claim to be and, and, and we have to be, this is one of those things, we have to be very careful. There's a difference between human condemnation and divine conviction, okay? Mm-hmm. Sometimes what we're exercising on people is our own condemnation. We have to lay it out there and, and let it be, let the Holy Spirit do it. But one of the things that's clear, the Holy Spirit is going to convict of sin. If you hear somebody boasting about how much the Holy Spirit is using them, and yet they never talk about the need for repentance or turning from sin or calling anything sin, then we have to back up a minute and say, wait a minute, uh, are we really talking about the Holy Spirit here? And by that, conviction doesn't just mean, by the way, conviction about sins prior to becoming a Christian, but it also means sins uh, that that I'm capable of and and, uh, prone to as a Christian. This is why when Paul says in in Ephesians that he tells us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. 
It is the Christian who's guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit there. So whenever you hear somebody say, uh, and and it's just true. Yes, you're right. Every message, every uh, every gathering of the church should not. The only message should not be your sinner, your sinner, your sinner, your sinner. Mm-hmm. But that has to be there someplace mm-hmm. because that's a primary role of the Holy Spirit right. to bring conviction of sin, both prior to salvation and after salvation, Mm -hmm. so that I come to Christ for salvation, and then I remain in salvation by Mm -hmm. an ongoing awareness of my brokenness and my need for Christ. Mm -hmm. Again, we come back to this: the sinner's prayer. One of the reasons I'm not a fan of it is because it it can give the impression, I, I prayed the prayer, everything's done, I'm on my way, And I don't have to worry about anything else instead of that growth process where the Holy Spirit grieves me, convicts me, guides me toward a deeper, uh, more balanced and comprehensive life with God. Mm -hmm. He describes the Holy Spirit a couple different ways. First, he says the Holy Spirit exercises his office as an advocate. Um, How so? Well, that gets into the dual role of the Spirit and the Son, because Jesus is also called an advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he pleads for us. He makes intercession, the book of Romans says, according to the will of God. The First Corinthians chapter 12 also describes the Holy Spirit's intercessory prayers. Uh, but to be honest, I have never thought about that in that, in that kind of context. It's something I'll need to think about, the Holy Spirit as an advocate because we tend to think of Jesus as the advocate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it because he points us to Jesus? It could be, yeah. I mean, Jesus says that when he comes, he'll speak, he'll show, he'll take what belongs to me Mm -hmm. and show it to you. So yeah, that could be, that could be the overlapping of those roles. Um, But we do know from Romans chapter eight, the Holy Spirit makes intercession according to the will of God. And that could be a part of his advocacy. Right. The other uh, way he describes them, he says the Holy Spirit is the counselor for the prosecution. So he brings up some lawyer terms, like we're standing in front of the judge, which one day we will. And uh, he is he's presenting evidence right. uh, to us. So so do you want to get into that? And how, well, that how, how he compares as counselor for the prosecution and av- as an advocate. Right. Well, he's, well. he's it, it's it's. Uh, Again, it's that comprehensive relationship of Scripture. But, but yeah, note, though, that, that the prosecutor's job is to point out uh, and make the a case that I have violated the law. I've broken the law in some way. Right. And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing, reminding us, I've broken God's law. Exactly. I stand condemned. Mm-hmm. And, and only when I realize that I stand condemned may I then cry out and say, I need an advocate. I need right. a defendant, a defender, and I need somebody to resolve this issue for me. So we stand guilty before God, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes or convicts us of the sin and the need that right. we have for Christ. Well, and and, and that, that's true. But we always need to, you know, in the case of a human court, it is possible for the defendant to never accept the verdict of the court. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, the court says that the old joke about everybody, every every person in prison is innocent. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's the old joke yeah. because even though the evidence has been presented, the judge has ruled, the person continues to say, "I'm not guilty." Now we so we we understand that a truly saved person never looks at the evidence of God and says, "I'm I'm not guilty. This is wrong." Uh, notice as well that that very that very concept that I'm always going to do, to protest my innocence, having had all the court rulings brought out against me, is exactly why people are punished in hell for eternity, mm-hmm. because they're still in rebellion against God. It isn't because they lived for 20 years or 30 years or 60 years in rebellion against God. It's because they're still in rebellion against God, mm-hmm. because they will not accept the verdict of the court Okay, they will not accept the verdict of the court, and and so that's where you get into those kind of courtroom terms that that John uses and Paul. Uh, but it is possible to not accept the verdict of the court, and I think the the thing that demonstrates the sincerity of my heart as a Christian is that awareness that yes, the court was right. I'm guilty. I stand condemned. I have done all these things. Right. Dr. Ferguson goes on, he says, the primary reference of uh, the words, I guess, referring to the co- how the Holy Spirit convicts uh, is related to the day of Pentecost. Uh, he quotes Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So, when the, uh, at the time of Pentecost, of course, it, it was uh, also called the Feast of Weeks, it would have been crowds in Jerusalem there. So, they were gathered there. All the disciples were there. Uh, was there ever a more perfect time for the coming of the Holy Spirit than that? No, of co- uh, obviously. Uh, if there was, that's when God would have chosen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, but so it, but, yeah he, I realized that was right. right. Yeah, now that that was kind of ridiculous, <laughs> redundant statement. But uh, no, but it's in it's in that perfect time, and just as Christ came in the perfect time, and the Holy Spirit came in the perfect time, which, mm-hmm. um, which which speaks to God's sovereignty and His control of all things, including all human events and all human decisions. Right. But just the the wonder of that. You know, something as you were saying that though, it, it was kind of it goes off on a different kind of uh, of, an, uh, of a direction. But on the day of Pentecost, uh, and he he gets into it later how all these people responded, their hearts were pricked. But my, my my a point that seems to come to mind is that there was a there was some behavior amongst the believers that was in complete contrast to everyone around them. And that we should be mindful while we are not to be, we, we, we shouldn't be, we should, we should not strive to be, uh, to use a less than perfect term, freaks in a circus sideshow. There should be something different about the Christian community right. from the world around us. Mm-hmm. And that brings us again to that sense of conviction of sin. If there's no conviction of sin 
what is different about us. Mm -hmm. If all we do is just say, well, yeah, that's okay. This is okay. That's not sinful. That's not a big deal. That's just a rule of man. blah." And we go down through there. Pretty soon, there's nothing distinguishing us from the people around us. And this is one of the reasons. I listened to a podcast yesterday where the guy had written a book about progressive Christianity and conservative Christianity. And progressive Christianity is just waters down everything, okay? Mm-hmm. And his argument was that progressive Christianity, first his argument was they're two different things. They're not the same. That progressive Christianity really isn't Christianity. But he went on to say that for that very reason, progressive Christianity is going to disappear. Because there is no difference between a progressive Christian and the world around them. There's nothing to appeal. There's nothing to say. What do those people have right. that that I'm that I need? Mm-hmm. Because they sound like me. They look like me. They dress like me. They pursue all the same goals of materialism, etc. And and so I, I I see in that picture of the day of Pentecost this distinction between the people of God and all the other people. And I I suggest that we should be thinking in our personal times. Uh, perhaps somebody watches this video and, and, and thinks, well, Lord, what about conviction in my own life? And I would challenge that person to, to look at how they live and say, what is what in my life really sets me apart from the people around me? Mm-hmm. On my job, on, in my community, uh, in, in my recreational choices, down the line, down the line. What really sets me apart from the, from the people around me? And... Why, why aren't I convicted or concerned about that? Mm-hmm. You know exactly. We're uh, and of course Jesus talks about that uh, a whole lot. He tells us we're to be lights in this dark uh, and dying world, and the only light we have is the light of Christ. So if if we hide that under a bushel, like right. he says, if we're hiding that and we're just like the world, uh, right? what difference can what, we what, make? What difference? And we make what, absolutely no difference right. at all. And Jesus used a similar metaphor about the salt of the earth. If the salt has let, lost its saltiness, its flavor, its, its preserving abilities, just throw it out. It's right. worthless. It's worthless. That's what, when revival comes to this, God's going to send a revival, you know, and I've been praying for it. Uh, I wonder how many churches are going to close down because of revival. Right. When you think of a revival, you think about church, uh, churches flourishing. Right. But I wonder how many churches are going to close down. Right, right. But uh, it'd be interesting to see. Dr. Ferguson goes on. He says, in light of its particular fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit on that day, we should be able to uncover the ground plan of this ministry of the Spirit in every age. And he goes on and he quotes John 16, uh, 8 through 11. Again, which we've already talked about a little bit of it. But it reads, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So we see three convictions 
And I'd never really thought about this before, but the first we see the conviction of sin in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And Dr. Ferguson also quotes Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the question I have when reading those two verses, do we sin because we don't believe? Or do we not believe because we're sinners? <laughs> well, that's a great that's a great question, and it's one of those one of those things that I would put under the uh, the old uh, two sides of the same coin thing. Right. Because Jesus says in John chapter chapter three, this is the judgment: uh, those that believe are not condemned; those who believe not are condemned already. And this is the reason that they're condemned because they do not believe mm -hmm. in the only begotten Son of God. Uh, but, but the reason we don't believe is because our hearts are darkened by sin. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and it compounds it because then it's not just a matter of us not believing, uh, but preferring that, preferring to be unbelievers, loving my darkness, loving my sin. And, and, and therefore I become, back to that word, insensible mm -hmm. to the, the things uh, about me. Mm -hmm. um, That that concept is, and of course that that those three things are uh, are more involved than you have time to get into in a little thing like oh, yeah, this. Yeah. But uh, but that yeah that that concept of uh, of a, it's both, and we need to see that that's why we must have God deliver us. Right. And it's not just about uh, it's both those things, not one or the other. Right. Right. Uh, the second one, conviction of righteousness, and he, uh, it's a, that's in verse 10 of John uh, 16. It says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And he goes on, he quotes uh, three more verses from John. The next one is fourteen twelve. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. John 14, 28, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And finally, in John 16, 28, I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world, and going to the Father. So, um, the Holy Spirit points to the life, death, um, burial, and resurrection and ascension uh, of Christ. Is that what he's pointing us to in these in these verses? Uh, yeah, that would be the simplest. That would be the simplest uh, thing to draw out. Okay, that's okay. that would be the simplest thing. I'm I'm thinking about verse twelve, which I have often used myself. The things I do, you shall do also. Right. And we've talked about that being the life of obedience. Mm -hmm. That we can't do the miracles of Christ. Right. Uh, we can't multiply loaves, walk on water, any of that. But so when he says the works I have done, you will do also. He doesn't mean those works. 
Right. But it does mean that every one of those works were done as an act of obedience to the Father. Mm-hmm. So that is something we can do, is obey the Father. And the, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness because Christ has gone to the Father. And the Father sends the Holy Spirit who brings these fruits to life mm-hmm. so that the presence of Christ, so to speak, is ongoing through the life of the church. And, and I think that's part of what he's saying there, that the proof that I am who I said I was is the ongoing life of the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why I say some of that is so, it's so involved, uh, but it's worth people pondering, you know, and maybe being motivated to do further research for themselves on that subject. Because it is when you first read it, just as it was there in John, uh, he, he's going to convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father. And, and your first response is, well, how does going to the Father prove any righteousness on your part? Right. It's when you unpack it further with the verses that mm-hmm. Dr. Ferguson provides. Exactly, which uh, he brings out First Timothy three sixteen, which says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicted by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And Romans 1 verse 4 says, And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we look, of course, They, the people present at the time of Pentecost, they could look back to the life of Christ. So they, there was no one there that could accuse him of any wrongdoing. Yeah. Or they yeah. would have. Or they would have. They right. would have stood up and and said something. So he's pointing to the righteousness of Christ, and of course we have no righteousness of our own. Uh, all they would have to do is quote Isaiah, and right. they would know that. Uh, so what we lack and what we need is provided in, in Christ. Right. Uh, then he goes on uh, conviction of judgment. John sixteen eleven says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, a lot of people might be confused about that. Uh, who is the ruler of this world? Well, the scripturally, the ruler of this world, meaning the ruler of the world systems, is Satan, you know. Right. Uh, it's one of those tricky areas where, and, and, and about God's sovereignty and Satan's power. Right. Uh, but we know that God, that Satan can do nothing that God doesn't let him do. Mm-hmm. And for the for the present dispensation, which is a tricky word, I don't want people to misunderstand my use of it. The devil is the one who is in control of the world systems, but not not ultimate control. That is, God can still override to accomplish his will, that the devil in his, this is one of the wonders of God, the devil in his free reign on the earth is still tethered, so to speak, that he can only accomplish what God wants accomplished uh, in the end anyway. Mm-hmm. Um so when, when Christ dies on the cross, the, 
ruler of this world is proven to have no power. He couldn't prevent that from happening. Exactly. And that's what, so that's some of the, uh, the outworkings of that, uh, that principle there in that verse. Mm -hmm. He goes on in quotes, second Corinthians, uh, four verse four, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So they, uh, he, in second Corinthians, uh, the apostle Paul calls him the God of this world, right? Which might confuse people too. Of course, little G, right? Little G and little G and world, world systems of the fallen people. Right. Uh, And that's a great verse again, because it says Satan has blinded their eyes Mm -hmm. and yet people are rescued from that blindness. Right. So that you see Satan's control limited. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's got control, but he cannot prevent God from saving those that he has called uh, from eternity past to, to be his children and people. So again, Satan has control, but his control is, is limited. He's on a leash. The dragon has no teeth is a phrase that you can use mm-hmm. because he's, he's at a limit. He can only do so much. And, and that's it. Was it- be continued. We will continue this conversation in the next episode. And it keeps getting more and more interesting. Be sure to like and share this with your friends, and be sure to subscribe to our channel. Thanks for listening.